This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Gabby Petito has been laid to rest a few weeks after attention on the missing 22-year-old exploded in traditional news outlets and on social media. She's just one of many Americans who've been reported missing. The FBI says four out of 10 missing persons in 2020 are people of color. Why do some stories capture the attention of the nation and others are completely ignored? Today, Derricka Wilson, co-founder of the Black and and joins us. Talk about missing cases are covered in the media. Later, we'll hear from Connecticut organizations that help survivors of domestic violence and their families. You can join us too, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Joining first on Zoom, Derricka Wilson, co-founder and CEO of the Black and Missing Foundation, a nonprofit working to bring awareness to missing persons of color. Derricka, welcome to the show. Good morning, and thank you so much for having us. Tell me more about your organization. When did you decide to create this group? We started the organization nearly 14 years ago. Um, I started it along with my sister-in-law, Natalie Wilson. My background is law enforcement. Her background is public relations, and those are two of the critical professions needed in finding our missing. The inspiration behind the organization was a young lady by the name of Tamika Houston. She went missing from my hometown of Spartanburg, South Carolina. And despite the fact that her aunt was in public relations, they struggled to garner local coverage, much less national. And months later, Natalie Holloway went missing and uh, her story was dominating local and national news. So Natalie and I decided to do some research to see what exactly is the magnitude of this issue. And when we started the organization, FBI studies show that 30% of missing persons in the United States were persons of color, and that number has since increased to 40%. So you said that you had a background in law enforcement. How long were you a police officer? I served for 10 years on the force. And what did you observe when you were uh, in law enforcement with how missing person cases uh, were treated? You know, I, I constantly tell everyone that, you know, we need more training um, because missing persons isn't considered a crime. And so, you know, there's not enough emphasis on, on how to handle these cases. Um, there needs to also be more uh, cultural diversity and, and sensitivity training. Um, for these families. And so, again, it's not considered, you know, a priority because it's not considered a crime. And, you know, I I noticed even with with my jurisdiction, you know, we handle all of our cases. Um, I work for a very small police department in Falls Church, Virginia. Um, But there are so many agencies that have limited resources where you may have a missing persons unit that only have you know, one to five officers dedicated to missing persons for that, you know, respective jurisdiction. So I really think that we need to change the narrative on how these cases are handled. I think we also need to change the reporting structure. So when a child goes missing, you know, families can report their loved ones missing immediately if it's a child. 
If it's an adult, uh, normally it's 24 hours, but in some states, you know, families can report their missing loved one uh, missing immediately. And so I think if we all came to the table and um, created that opportunity for everyone that has a missing loved one to report them missing immediately, it really greater the chances of a reunion because every minute counts. You know, time is of the essence. We know that adults can come and go as they please. However, families know when something is wrong, something isn't right. Right. You're hearing Derricka Wilson, co-founder and CEO of the Black and Missing Foundation. Again, it's a nonprofit working to bring awareness to missing persons of color. You know, I mentioned that statistic at the top, uh, four out of 10 missing persons in 2020, Derricka, were people of color, but we're not hearing about them. And you said that law enforcement and public relations are two very important areas when someone is missing to get that message out there. And then there's a, the media's role. So talk about what we have observed in the last two decades and you know some of the reasons why missing persons of color are ignored well you know we all know the names of natalie holloway lacey peterson chandra levy elizabeth smart gabby petito but not one person can name uh, a person of color that has garnered mainstream media not one and you know it's not just the responsibility of law enforcement it's all of us it's law enforcement it's the media and it's the community and i'll start with law enforcement first we have to make sure that we are classifying the cases appropriately so oftentimes when uh, families of missing black and brown children go and report their their child missing they are oftentimes labeled as runaways Runaways are not receiving the Amber Alert, and quite frankly, there's no sense of urgency uh, when they're putting out that message that this child is a runaway. I really think we need to do away with that, that term, runaway. And with our organization, we don't even utilize that term because it really desensitizes that case. And then when it comes to missing adults of color, their disappearance is oftentimes associated with some sort of criminal activity. And then that, of course, desensitize and dehumanize that missing individual. When it comes to the media, um, there needs to be more diversity in the newsroom because oftentimes the decision makers who decide what goes on air, they don't look like us. And, and we really need to drive home less is more, less of one particular race, more of everyone that's missing and greater the chances of a reunion. Um, you know, missing persons is not a black issue. It's not a white issue. It's an American issue. And all of these families that are having to deal with the unknown of not knowing where their loved one is, their heart bleeds the same way. You know, not knowing if their loved one is hungry, if they're cold, if they're being mistreated, if they're even gonna walk through the front door. So we have to do a better job of getting these cases out there. And we understand that not all cases will, you know, uh, elevate up to mainstream media. Not every case will be in the five and 10 o'clock news cycle, but we're very resourceful where we can actually put these flyers on the website. We can utilize the social media platform because we just want to get the, the images out there because again, awareness is key in solving these cases. And then the community, the community plays a huge role because if everything works in order, once law enforcement take the report and classify the case appropriately, once the media help push the information out there, 
then the public can see, they can share, and they can come forward with tips. We want them to say something if they were to see something. So that's how it all works. And, and that's why it's so important for all of us to work together. You know, when we started the show, it's pegged to the unfortunate uh, case of Gabby Petito. But since uh, all that attention on, on her case, uh, there was another uh, person, I believe Daniel Robinson, uh, a young black geologist who'd gone missing. Is there more attention now on, on his particular case? And can, you, and can you talk about how that progressed? Yes, absolutely. And, and let me just say, um, our hearts go out to uh, Gabby Petito's family. No family should have to go through this. You know, so we, we send our condolences to her family. Um, there has been uh, renewed energy in highlighting missing person cases in light of Gabby Petito. And, and Daniel Robinson's case is one of those. Uh, I actually spoke to um, Daniel's father a couple of nights ago. And it's so devastating and he is so saddened by the fact that his son, you know, a young black male geologist, you know, graduated college in 2019, um, took a job uh, out in Arizona and, you know, he's actually working in the, in the desert and he went missing in June. Um, his vehicle was found overturned about a month later uh, in July. And Mr. Robinson, who lives in South Carolina, he's had to since travel up to Arizona and he's still in Arizona to this day. And he has no desire to return back to South Carolina until he finds his son. But he's had to take matters into his own hands because law enforcement is just not doing anything and they're not getting any assistance from neighboring jurisdictions or even the federal government to help with the case. So Mr. Robinson has had to hire a private investigator. He's had to hire search teams to go out there and, and look for his son and, and also, you know, creating flyers. So, you know, we have even provided the financial assistance to help him because, you know, that's the, those resources were not dedicated to him. So when he turns his television on and he sees that the FBI and local police departments are all rallying around to, to help find Gabby, you know, he was asking, what about my son? They pulled out the drones. They pulled out the divers. They pulled out the cadaver dolls. They pulled out the four-wheelers. Um, and, and they're still, and although they had a service for Gabby, they are still utilizing the, the resources because the manhunt continues for Gabby's fiance laundry. And, and these are our taxpayer dollars that are paying for this. So in Mr. Robinson's eyes, he was like, okay, so I'm paying for this service you know, to help. And, and of course we want to help everyone, but I'm also having to pay out of my pocket and, and also solicit, you know, donations through a GoFundMe to apply the same type of resources for my missing son that was not allocated for him. That's a very hurtful feeling. The disparities between the two cases when we talk about resources is is obvious as you uh, as you tell it, uh, Derek. Uh, Elizabeth shared on Facebook, you know, hundreds of black, Latinx and indigenous women go missing every year. Sometimes it feels like they don't matter. And so I wanted to get your response to that. when We think about the message this sends to our society in general when particular cases you know, are ignored and the fact that, you know, all people deserve to be protected, but that's not the message that we're seeing and reading and hearing. 
Absolutely. And and she's exactly right. You know, that's why our organization exists. And that's why we partner with other organizations, you know, to highlight, you know, the missing community, um, because it is important. I, I can't stress enough. Less is more. Less of one particular race and more of everyone across the board that's missing. It greater the chances of a reunion. I've seen on social media, and I'm sure everyone that's on social media, see these families taking matters into their own hands. So they're creating their flyers of their missing loved ones. And what we are seeing with our organization, the Black and Missing Foundation, is that a lot of these families are becoming victims of scammers. They're creating flyers, they're putting their personal phone numbers on there, and scammers are reaching out to them. They're receiving ransom calls. I mean, just yesterday, a family reached out to to us asking for help because they heard about our organization, their loved one has been missing, and they've been scammed three times. Um, We had a family that has a a missing daughter. Uh, She disappeared December of 2011. They were scammed and they actually lost their entire life savings and their home went into foreclosure because someone or multiple people, you know, unbeknownst to us, were reaching out to the family and they scammed them. And so now this family is at a complete loss because they're daughter is still missing. You know, these families are very vulnerable. They're at their lowest point. Just think about this. Think about if you misplace your keys or you misplace your cell phone, how frantic you are. I mean, your anxiety goes through the roof. Now multiply that times a thousand, not knowing where your loved one is and not knowing if resources are gonna be dedicated to finding your loved one and, and if your loved one is going to walk through the front door again, that is a horrible feeling. Derek, I, ma- I imagine your phone is ringing off the hook. You get multiple emails a day from families across the country looking for help. You're talking to us here in Connecticut, and I'm wondering if you can talk about, about all, any Connecticut cases, cold cases, or uh, people that you've been able to help uh, with that have a local connection. You know, one one case that stands out is um, Giovanna Crawford. It's a it's a cold case. Um, she went missing in 1981. She was four years old when she went missing. Today, she would be 44 years old. And there has been an age progression photo that was created um, as to what she would look like today. And just as you know, the circumstances behind that case, um, she was given to um, an unidentified, you know, male juvenile uh, by a family member to take her over to another relative. And ever since giving her to that unidentified male juvenile, she hasn't been seen or heard from since. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that, is, that is so devastating because um, she can be anywhere. You know, she could have been sold. Someone else could be raising her. I mean, we've seen stories such as that, um, you know, where children have disappeared when they were babies and toddlers. And, you know, years later, they realize something isn't right and they really start looking and searching. And and we hope that that this is the case because we can't even imagine, you know, what her parents are feeling, what her grandparents are feeling, you know, every single day, the agony. We're talking about since 1981. 
I mean, it's been so many years, but this is one of those cases out of Connecticut. And we do have a few more cold cases on our website. And the more people that learn about our organization, the more families that contact us asking for help. Because oftentimes when they come to us, we're their last resort. Um, you know, it's like everyone else has failed them. You know, I'm thinking in particular to a case yesterday, a uh, family heard about us yesterday and reached out. And just to talk to the daughter of this, the, the mother's missing and her daughter reached out. And the family has been trying to get the police department in uh, this other state to take a police report. And uh, she called again yesterday. I actually had coached her on what to say. And the person that she spoke with yesterday told her that they can't take a missing persons report until she could get some sort of diagnosis that her mom has a mental health issue. Mm. Wow. And, and that is just completely unacceptable. Right. Before we let you go, Derricka Wilson, you mentioned your website. I want to let our listeners know it's blackandmissinginc.com to see some of these Connecticut cold cases, but also to find a way to contact you and your colleagues. Actually, it's bamfi.org. It's B-A-M-F-I dot O-R-G. Okay, thank you for that. We'll make sure to tweet it out uh, at where we live. Uh, Coming up, we're going to be talking about um, domestic violence and that role in missing person cases nationwide. Can you talk specifically how domestic violence is impacting specifically women of color from the cases that you've helped? Oh, absolutely. Um, There is a correlation between missing persons of color and domestic violence. And we see that uh, daily. Um, even with Gabby Petito's case, her case was a case of domestic violence as well. Um, but, you know, in the minority community, we're oftentimes silent about things because we don't want, it's the shame, it's the embarrassment. People don't want others to know what's happening. Uh, minorities tend to want to be private. But we have had so many cases where um, women and men have disappeared at the hands of their significant other. And it happens more often than people even realize. I would actually say, you know, half of our cases uh, involve some sort of domestic violence uh, situation. And then of course, human trafficking is, you know, another issue that we are seeing in mental health. Terika Wilson, thank you so much for coming on and for the work that you're doing. Co-founder and CEO of the Black and Missing Foundation, again, a nonprofit working to bring awareness to missing persons of color. Derricka, have a great day. Thank you so much. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we talk more about stories of the missing and also how these cases can be intertwined in domestic violence or intimate partner violence. You can join our conversation if you have a question, 888-720-9677, 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Health Care. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford Health Care.
Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Whose lives are worth protecting? Media coverage over the last two decades clearly shows white Americans who disappear get more attention than others. The late PBS journalist Gwen Ifill coined the phrase missing white women syndrome in 2004. It's still relevant today in light of the Gabby Petito story. For a Connecticut perspective, joining us now on Zoom is Megan Scanlon, CEO of the Connecticut Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Megan, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me, Lucy. Earlier, we heard from Derricka Wilson from the Black and Missing Foundation. I wanted to hear your response to what she shared about you know, how missing person cases are talked about in this country and when we're talking about missing persons of color, how um, they are ignored. Yeah, I think we see this. I think a lot of what Derricka explained, we see in intimate partner violence cases as well. And we certainly have an example of that most recently in Connecticut with um, you know, the Jennifer Dulos case getting a lot of local and national attention. Um, but what really didn't necessarily get as much attention is just this march, literally in the same month, to uh, women from New Haven, both mothers, um, uh, Dwinea Turner and Alessia Mosquita, both were fatally shot by their partners. Um, so I think you know, sometimes it does come down to zip codes, which is unfortunate. Um, so I, like Derricka, think, you know, it's it's not necessarily a, a white or a black or a brown issue. It's all of our issues. And I think we need to do better in terms of resources, media coverage, um, about sharing each and every one of these stories um, in in the public view, because as much as we may relate to uh, Jennifer Dulos, who we absolutely, you know, our hearts go out to her family as well, um, just as equally do, you know, our hearts go out to Dwayne and Alessia's families and their children that will never get to really know the hopes and dreams that their mothers had for them. Because you spoke about these two specific cases, what has been the outcome? So, you know, I think that, you know, they are both homicide cases. They both um, actually, and you know, have, have ended successfully in the sense that the perpetrators have been, um, have been arrested and held on, on bail and bond and the criminal process will play itself out. But again, I think, you know, to Derricka's point earlier, I think there are some cultural and racial issues around sharing, um, sharing what's going on in a relationship um, sharing uh, or getting past the shame or other issues that um, 
individuals might be dealing with um, on a one-on-one basis. And so, you know, CCADV is really trying to get out into communities through uh, various avenues, through different avenues like our faith-based ambassador program in order to, um, to bring allies into the work because domestic violence, just like missing persons, requires every single one of us to be involved because it affects all of us regardless of our race or gender or socioeconomic status. Uh, you alluded to uh, Derek saying that in communities of color, there is shame over domestic violence. Often uh, communities are silent over this issue. And so what are some ways that your organization is helping? You mentioned some, but in terms of just uh, generally, when we hear um, about this issue happening in our neighborhood and our communities, you know, how can we better support families? Sure. So there's a couple things that that we do on a daily basis. Obviously, we have um, we have our statewide hotline, um, and we have every we have various languages, so people can feel comfortable calling in and speaking in their own language if that's if that's the issue. Um, but we also have partnered with a lot of our community partners, whether it be community health centers or women's health clinics or pediatricians, um, churches. Um, local um, community programs, social service programs to um, to talk about intimate partner violence, to educate, to bring awareness to, um, to individuals uh, so that we are at least touching them in some way. So if something is happening, they know about the resources that they can um, access and they're all free and confidential and safe um, and voluntary throughout the state. So our real main goal is to continue to do our outreach to continue to serve survivors, but we know that we need to get into, um, you know, more communities throughout the state and continue to do that work, and especially being sensitive to the fact that, um, you know, calling nine one one is not always the uh, the right answer, um, depending on on the person and the circumstances. Megan, you mentioned the hotline. Can you share that with our listeners? Sure. Um, so we have a, for those that don't know, we have a statewide hotline. It's, um, it's called CT Safe Connect, and you can actually access it via chat, email, calling in. Um, so the, the uh, website is ctsafeconnect.com. So you can go to that website. Um, or you can simply call 888-774-2900. You're hearing Megan Scanlon here on Where We Live. Again, she's CEO of the Connecticut Coalition Against Domestic Violence. You know, because we were talking about especially women of color, I wanted to highlight that uh, back in April, Interior Secretary Deb Holland, who's the first Native American cabinet secretary in our country, announced the creation of a unit to investigate missing and murdered Native Americans. She said in April that violence against indigenous peoples is a crisis that has been underfunded for decades. And when we look at statistics nationally, Native American women are the victims of murder at more than 10 times the national average. That's according to the Coalition to Stop Violence Against Native Women. Now we were talking about ways to support uh, families um, 
of people um, who are in uh, relationships where there's domestic violence or unfortunately if they've been killed because of intimate uh, partner uh, violence. Uh, joining us now on Zoom is Susan O'Million. She's an attorney and project director of the Never Going Back to Abuse Project for the Connecticut Alliance for Victims of Violence and Their Families, also known as CT Alive. Susan, welcome to our show. Thank you so much, Lucy. Uh, we invited you on because you have a very personal connection to this. Your 19-year-old niece, Maggie, was shot and killed uh, by her ex-boyfriend in October of 1999. And uh, I'm so sorry to hear that happened to you and your family. Can you tell us more about Maggie? Yes, uh, thank you so much, Lucy. Um, yes, uh, so Maggie wasn't a missing person. She was a college student. She was off at school, uh, at a school in Michigan. Uh, which is where my family is from. I was born and raised in, in Detroit. Um, and she had a boyfriend. She had left the relationship. Um, he was uh, pushing the relationship too far, too fast. She called him immature. He had never physically assaulted her during this relationship or even um, when, when she left, when she wanted to leave the relationship. Um, but he was continuing to stalk her on the campus, um, she, he was continuing to uh, push the relationship. And um, so she decided, um, knowing my niece, she was one of those very um, uh, kind, she was a very, she was a person that was a problem solver. So she was going to solve this problem by herself. And she went to see him um, one more time, I believe, in her mind, um, in his dorm room uh, late Sunday night. And she didn't know he had a gun. Uh, so he killed her and he killed himself. Um, and um, although she wasn't a missing person, uh, we thought she was off at college and safe and protected. I did get that dreaded phone call in the middle of the night um, that saying she had been killed, uh, shot and killed, and that he killed himself. That must have been so hard. Again, we're so sorry to hear that. Uh, when we think about intimate partner violence, uh, what did you know about the relationship so she may not have been physically assaulted, but what about um, the emotional abuse? What did you know? You know, what, one of the things that was shocking to me about this, um, which certainly got my anger up, um, uh, Maggie's one of those kids like, you know, something, when she'd always ask me about the cases, I'm an attorney, I, have, I was practicing law for a number of years when she was younger, um, representing women in domestic violence cases, um, going through divorce. And she would say, oh, that's just so unfair that happened to them. We should do something about that. So I think she knew about abuse. I think she had some words for it. I think that um, she thought she could handle him. And she didn't realize that there was um, some of the warning signs that she missed, that she didn't know what his trigger was going to be. And as Megan knows in the, in the incredible programs that um, CCADV supports in, in, our, in our state, um, is that, you know, that moment of vulnerability, uh, when they leave the relationship, you don't really know what's going to happen next. So I think she missed that warning sign. And also that the idea that, you know, he was, he was threatening to kill himself. Um, and that's always a sign that there's, um, you know, an emotional manipulation going on. So you come back to me and you'll be safe. But if you, if you leave me, then something bad's going to happen. Um, so she didn't really assess the danger in the moment. And she didn't have a safety plan, which is one of the things that the programs uh, here in Connecticut and around the country and the world will help um, women do is create a safety plan. Um, so those are the things she missed, I think. And 
to her um, detriment, but also to the idea that these are the things we have to keep working on in terms of keeping women safe. And so you got involved with helping uh, women to keep them safe. Again, your project director of the Never Going Back to Abuse Project of the Connecticut Alliance for Victims of Violence and Their Families. You mentioned it's important to have a safety plan. Can you talk more about that? So um, I, I don't duplicate the services that are provided through the programs that CCADV's coalition um, does support. Um, so although I have worked, I am working with women who are still managing some of the issues uh, having coming out of a relationship. For example, um, a lot of the women have children with the men that um, uh, they have left uh, or in the process of leaving. So there's constant you know, um, issues of, um, of guarding their safety, talking about that. And then also the idea that if they're going to move on to a new relationship, how are they connecting and, and, and looking for a healthy relationship? And once again, knowing the warning signs and, and talking that through. What I really focus on is helping them move forward. Because one of the reasons why women go back or they stay is because they um, are economically dependent upon this person. They may think that they're, there's, they're, they can't live without them. They can't be successful without them. So as Maggie couldn't move on after abuse, and I couldn't do anything about that. I wanted to help other women to move on as she could not and to really begin to stabilize their lives emotionally, socially, and financially so that not only would they not go back to an abusive relationship, but that they would um, begin to really um, become the person they wanted to be, follow some of their dreams. So I put together a workshop. I remember I'm an attorney, not, not a clinician. It's a, it's a motivational workshop. And I've provided it free for the last 20 years because of CT Alive and the support they've, they've given me. And also the Hartford HealthCare has provided resources for me. Um, and I try to work with them. I work with them. Um, to begin to talk about being more positive in their life, starting to work on some desires that they have, going back to school, getting a better job, start singing again, start painting again, something that really will get them moving and then pushing through their fears and then finding that part of them that's been untouched by all that's ever happened to them. And um, to, my, to their credit, um, because this is really um, their journey, not mine, um, that they've done amazing things. And so that's really the legacy that I have for Maggie, um, that something good has come out of something horribly tragic. And um, that's what I think we need to uh, understand about this process, that it is a journey and that women can move on and begin to see, as I have moved on from this, although there are certainly days and times and um, you know, hearing about Gabby's case and what was going on and how it, must have felt for her family, um, certainly brought back lots of feelings that I had about it. You're hearing Susan Amelian again here on Where We Live. Uh, also with us on Zoom is Megan Scanlon, CEO of the Connecticut Coalition Against Domestic Violence. We started talking about uh, missing persons in our country and the fact that uh, many of these cases, there's a correlation between uh, their uh, disappearance, the fact that they may be domestic violence or intimate uh, partner violence, um, 
um, involved in that in some way. And so, uh, Megan Scanlon, when we um, invited you onto the show, we wanted to hear more about the resources for um, people who are in these relationships. And because Susan mentioned a safety plan, can we go back to that? Can you talk more about why that's important? Sure. Um, and Susan, I, I'm so sorry to hear about uh, Maggie, but thank you for the work that you're continuing to do in her honor. Um, yeah, so we have CCADV has 18 sites across the state, um, suburban, rural, urban sites where um, individuals can seek um, assistance. And one of the um, one of the things that an advocate will um, sit down and do with a victim of domestic violence or intimate partner violence will sit down and create an individualized safety plan with the individual. Um, Sometimes that requires immediate um, removal from the situation. So we, we run um, a statewide shelter system for um, victims of domestic violence and their children. And oftentimes there might be um, other uh, solutions or avenues um, that don't require that, that immediate um, shelter assistance. We can work with them a little bit long-term. As Susan mentioned, a lot of times there is an economic um, piece to the abuse as well as psychological, emotional, and often physical. Um, so we are also working through um, those factors in order to get the victims to a place where they can um, start to think about um, leaving and goals beyond, um, you know, beyond the trauma. So we do try to think about housing, think about jobs, childcare, um, we, we have court advocates, so if there is a criminal or civil or family court issue, um, we have advocates throughout the state that work with our judicial branches in order to help victims navigate um, the judicial system as well. We've mentioned the Gabby Petito case a few times, and when we hear about uh, these stories and that uh, domestic violence uh, may have been a part of it, I mean, it brings attention to the fact that, that resources are needed to, to help, uh, especially women. Uh, but, you know, what should we also be talking about in terms of relationships and what um, men should learn uh, from these stories about uh, women who um, have experienced this and are dealing with a loss of control and don't know how uh, to seek out for help? Can we talk more about that, this education in general, about the types of relationships that people should have and um, the warning signs? Yeah, so I think if if anybody's watched the, the police um, footage from Utah, I think, you know, I think this is is critical is that I think sometimes the emotional and psychological abuse that um, happens within intimate partner violence can come across as a mental health issue um, and, and maybe that individual's issue and not necessarily a result of, of other things going on. So I do think there's that confusion um, when it comes to males and how they can be more of a partner in this work. And certainly, you know, males and women and men um, are victims of domestic violence. But I think that's a big um, factor in terms of distinguishing between the two. I think often that does get confused. And I wonder if if there wasn't some confusion around that, it, whether or not the police would have made an arrest and uh, or given a citation, as I think the Utah law does state if it's considered domestic violence. 
Um, but overall, I think uh, we need to start working on educating boys in and men at an earlier age. Um, so we have a program, uh, Coaching Boys into Men, that runs in the greater Hartford area. Uh, we partner with um, various school systems, coaches, and their um, boys um, sports teams. And we uh, provide them a curriculum to teach them about healthy relationships, respect, how to communicate things using um, words, how to, um, you know, how to manage your own emotions, how to manage your own feelings in a healthy and productive way so that you're not necessarily um, taking that out on any individual, um, but certainly not in a um, intimate partner relationship. Um, so that's one piece that we are currently focused on, but we obviously know we need to do more um, as we move forward as an organization beyond just individuals that are participating in, in sports. Um, so we do want to, you know, get to the boys that aren't playing sports and get to the girls that aren't playing sports. Um, but I think that's crucial. I think, uh, you know, as Susan probably can attest to, you know, her, um, her niece was obviously, you know, very smart and probably, um, recognize some of the signs, but I think we also have to acknowledge and teach our children that this is a complicated issue um, and you're going to have really mixed emotions and feelings. Um, and it's important that we try to help them navigate that and um, that although this person may, you may care about them, uh, the, the display of either their emotion or physical abuse is not love. And I think we really need to teach what healthy love is. And I think that's a challenge, especially for children who have either witnessed intimate partner violence or um, have been victims themselves. Um, so we, you know, we're committed to that work moving forward, as I know the, the alliances as well. We need to take a quick break, but I wanted to, Susan, we need to take a real quick break. I'll go right back to you uh, once we come back. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Again, you just heard Megan Scanlon, CEO of the Connecticut Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Susan O'Million is here also, Project Director of the Never Going Back to Abuse Project of the Connecticut Alliance for Victims of Violence and Their Families. We'll continue our conversation in just a few minutes. Where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. We're talking about domestic violence and intimate partner violence, how to help survivors and their families. Uh, my guests are Megan Scanlon, CEO of the Connecticut Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Susan O'Millian's also here with the Connecticut Alliance for Victims of Violence and Their Families. Susan, you wanted to, to respond to Megan's comments. Yeah, I just wanted to add and, and thank, welcome Megan to CCDV. Uh, we haven't had a chance to meet yet, but I guess this is one way to meet, um, talking <laughs> on the radio together. Um, yeah, one, first of all, um, I get great referrals from the programs that CCDV is, is part of um, the 18 member program. So um, I provide that next step 
um, that um, and 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 reinforce and um, and support the kind of services and the moving on process, the the next step, the critical next step. I call it victim to survivor to thriver. That's really what I've been working on through my Maya Vengeance Angel workshops and and um, my website, which is Thriver Zone. Um, but I wanted to go back to talking a bit about um, the uh, Maggie's case um, around two things. One about working with men. And also one of the reasons I think my niece took this problem all by herself, took it on all by herself, is that the, the, the failure of the systems around her to, 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 to support her. She did not feel there were, there were resources on that campus that were gonna help her solve this problem. Um, the campus police, um, there was no identification on that campus. This is now 20 years ago about relationship issues, relationship violence. There was some emphasis on sexual assault uh, counseling, but certainly not on uh, relationship issues. So uh, I think that happened in Gabby's case where the police that in Utah, although they tried to help um, that night and went through a series of um, actions that um, might have been calculated in another situation to help. Um, but um, she, I can't speak for Gabby, but she perhaps thought she could solve this problem, or at least there was nothing, there was nobody else who was going to help her in that moment. And so she got back in the van uh, with him and continued their, their journey. Um, the other thing is that since Maggie's death, I have worked with men who uh, um, have been arrested for domestic violence. I spent about 15 years doing psychoeducational programs with men um, through the, um, the probation system here in Connecticut. And I, I agree with Megan, we, we haven't done enough work in our society, or at least we haven't recognized that we socialize men um, in a way that doesn't always help them have healthy relationships. Um, and um, for example, there's not a whole lot of good role models for what, what is a real man and how does he uh, respect and, and uh, respect women and have a healthy relationship. I think there's also a, a emphasis on that, you know, for men, uh, anger is something that they um, are the one emotion they're allowed to show. And so a lot of what I was doing in those psychoeducational groups was helping men to realize that there were other paths, other communication styles, there were other ways to resolve conflicts. Um, and because they were in the the criminal justice system at them at that particular moment, they um, you know had some potential to get some education, but it always wasn't um, what they thought um, men are supposed to be doing, or that they didn't have role models to follow. Um, so a lot of education about healthy relationships, I think, would be something that um, would it help would help men. I think the other thing that's been really important, and and I applaud CCADV and others in Connecticut who have worked on um, identifying in the statutes um, uh, coercive control. So not just physical and, and emotional, but that manipulation kind of stuff. And my niece was definitely manipulated by this man, not only in the relationship, but to come to his room by herself uh, on a Sunday night um, and try to talk to him one more time. That was a manipulation. And Maggie, um, I think Megan mentioned this. She wanted to be kind to him. Um, she wanted to let him down. Um, she had ended the relationship. She knew he was upset and she wanted to go and talk to him and make it better. And um, that wasn't what happened. We just have a couple of minutes left. Uh, Megan, can you tell us briefly about the coercive uh, control law that, that she just mentioned? 
Sure. Um, so part of it actually took effect in uh, July 1st, but the entire law takes effect actually this Friday, October 1st. Um, so uh, the way in which we define coercive control is a pattern of anything from isolation, intimidation, financial control, um, but individuals will be able to um, actually seek out um, either restraining orders um, under this or um, use this in uh, their um, civil or family uh, court uh, cases. And the key to this is you do have to show and establish a pattern um, of this behavior. So that um, that will be, I think, interesting. There's obviously very little case law in Connecticut on it. So we do, uh, you know, we are going to be working alongside um, the uh, judicial branch with uh, court support services and others. Um, we've been actively working to train um, train uh, them in this new law. Um, and one of the key pieces will be how um, how judges um, interpret the law as we move forward. Um, so I think that's going to be critical as um, as we move forward. But it's a piece that I think we've been seeing in the court system for a long time, um, but we didn't necessarily name it and we didn't necessarily have a statute um, that uh, that victims could utilize as an option um, in the past. So I think we are very excited that there is a new option and that we're actually naming this as it's been going on, as Susan can attest to, for much longer than we've actually been acknowledging in some of our um, state uh, uh, institutions. Well, Megan Scanlon, thank you for coming on the show. Again, CEO of the Connecticut Coalition Against Domestic Violence. You mentioned your 18 shelters. A good reminder that uh, these uh, shelters, this organization, needs support from Connecticut state lawmakers and the governor, and that funding has not really increased over the last, I believe, a decade. So we appreciate your time talking about these resources for Connecticut residents, Megan. Thank you so much, Lucy, and thank you, Susan. Thank and Susan Amillion was here. Susan was Amillion is an attorney and project director of the Never Going Back to Abuse Project of the Connecticut Alliance for Victims of Violence and Their Families, also known as CT Live. We'll be sure to tweet out a link to her organization as well. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. We'll be back tomorrow.